Hello, Fresh Ed listeners. I am Iveta Silova. I'm Gustavo Fishman. We are organizing the inaugural symposium of the Comparative and International Education Society, which will take place in November at Arizona State University. This year's theme is Global Learning Metrics. We have a great list of speakers who will share different viewpoints on the possibility, feasibility and desirability of testing regimes that have spread worldwide. In an effort to have this important conversation with a wide audience, we are working with Fresh Ed to launch a podcast mini-series focusing on global learning metrics. For the next seven weeks, Fresh Ed will air interviews with some of the invited speakers at the symposium. We hope that these shows will spark your interest in joining the symposium. It starts on November 10th in Scottsdale, Arizona. You will find more details at freshedpodcast.com. To kick off the miniseries, Professor Eric Hanushek speaks with Will Bram about knowledge, capital, and education quality. Enjoy the show, and we hope to see you in Arizona. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, I speak with renowned educational economist Eric Hanushek about global learning metrics and his use of cross-national educational data to understand what is possible in education systems around the world. He has authored or edited 23 books along with over 200 articles. Dr. Hanushek is perhaps most famous for introducing the idea of measuring teacher quality through the growth in student achievement, which forms the basis for value-added measures for teachers in schools. More recently, his work has focused on the quality of education and its connection to national economic growth. Eric Hanushek is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University and will speak at the CIES Symposium this November. Eric Hanushek, welcome to Fresh Ed. Will, thanks so much for having me. What are global learning metrics? Well, I don't know that there's any standard definition of global learning metrics, but I think what people use it to imply is how do we compare the education that we see around the world? And that, for my own work, I'm interested in ways to compare one country to another. And so what, what sort of um, metrics exist uh, currently that, that people or, or researchers like yourself use to compare systems of education uh, across the world? Well, perhaps the most common is just how many years of schooling does somebody complete in different countries. Uh, that turns out not to be a very good metric uh, because a year of schooling in Peru is not the same as a year of schooling in Japan. Um, So, in my opinion, uh, better metrics involve what people actually learn when they're in school and and what they learn when they're out of school. And so what what metric would be used to measure what students learn in school? Well, the the most straightforward is a series of tests uh, that we now have to compare countries. Uh, Most people today know the PISA test, the uh, Program for International Student Assessments, but there's historically been uh, what is now the TIMS test, the um, Trends in International Math and Science Study, 
which actually started out with a prior version in the mid-1960s. So this, this endeavor has obviously been, been going for quite some time, the ability or the, the attempt to measure student learning cross-nationally. Um, absolutely. Um, as I say, it started in mid-1960s when some people asked the question, can we compare learning across different countries? And it was really rather experimental, but they gave uh, math and uh, reading tests and science tests to people in different countries. At various times, they've applied to different ages and different subject matters, but it's basically taking a set of questions of knowledge and learning or analytical abilities, translating them into languages of the home country and marching them around the world and see how kids do of the same age and schooling levels in different countries. So you say that the uh, metric for student learning is 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 more significant or is a better predictor of um, of it, I guess we're talking about economic growth in the future. Is that is that what these metrics try to predict? Well, I don't think they were designed in that way. They were designed by some psychometricians who were interested in just testing learning. Um, but my, I'm an economist, and my interest was in finding out whether these tests were good measures of the capacity, intellectual capacity or cognitive skills of people in different countries, and if so, if they explain some of the economic differences that we see across countries. So can you give us a few examples of, of, um, of your research and, and what you found using these uh, metrics cross-nationally? Well, I think that the most important uh, part of, the re- of my research has been to look at differences in economic growth uh, of countries. If we look around the world, we see some countries are a lot richer than other countries. What this richness largely exp- uh, is related to is the economic growth rates of these countries over time. You know, at some prehistoric time, everybody had about the same wealth. But uh, as time has gone on, and in particular over the last few centuries, differences in economic growth rates dictate uh, income levels and economic well-being of people in different countries. Um, so my my interest has been, can we explain those? Um, that's also been the interest of a number of uh, of economists, but they haven't spend so much time looking at uh, learning or these international tests as much as looking at just years of schooling and things like that, that they think might be proxies for the knowledge of people in different countries. So why is looking at learning um, a better metric for or connected to, to economic growth than years of schooling? Well, I think it um, tells a lot more about the skills of people in different countries and the quality translated into the labor force and the scientists and the ability to improve productivity. Economic growth is essentially um, doing more with the same amount of time and resources. It's productivity, and it's the growth in productivity over time that determines economic growth. 
turns out that people with both more skilled scientists and engineers and more skilled labor forces, uh, those countries grow faster. So what sort of skills um, have you found to be good indicators of, of economic growth? Well, um, that's not quite the question that I've asked um, because these tests, if we take the PISA test run by the OECD, the PISA test measure a variety of different math problems, for example, um, of different skill levels, but <clears throat> is not that I would suggest that people learn how to solve all the PISA tests, that those are the skills that are important. What these PISA scores are is simply a proxy for the cognitive abilities, the uh, analytical skills of people in different countries, and the skills that come across in the labor force are developed both in society and in schools. So universities take people with basic uh, abilities and try to give them specific skills. They teach them how to be mechanical engineers or how to be scientists or how to be a good artist or uh, how to be good economist. And those are the skills that ultimately play out in the labor force. So you're not saying that we need to identify particular skills that should be taught to all children across the globe for the best, quote-unquote, the best economic performance in the future? Absolutely. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that when we measure skills of, say, 15-year-olds in the PISA test or 8th graders in the TIMS test, they give us an index of the basic fundamental background that people, that schools can build upon. And uh, the simple answer is that colleges and universities develop more skillful people when they have people that come in knowing more. So Stanford University has a very selective admissions program, and it allows them to produce some spectacular outcomes, out, uh, some students with spectacular knowledge and innovative capacity that wouldn't be quite, as, quite so good if they took people that were less prepared because the universities in earlier grades basically take some fundamental analytical capacities, cognitive skills, and mold them into knowledge in different subject areas and different abilities to solve problems and do new things. Hi, Fresh Ed listeners. This is Noah Sobe. I'm the president-elect of the Comparative and International Education Society. I hope many of you can attend the first-ever CIS symposium. But before the symposium kicks off in Arizona this November, there's a firm deadline of October 1st for next year's CIS conference, which will take place in Atlanta. The submission deadline is only one week away. You can find all the details at CIES2017.org. Again, that's CIES2017.org. So you have this idea of the knowledge capital, which is related to human capital, which is a pretty popular theory connecting economics and education. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by knowledge capital? 
Sure. Um, we use that term to denote the aggregate uh, cognitive skills of a nation. So we take test scores and use those in, as an index of the cognitive skills of a nation. We had to change the terms from human capital. We changed the term largely because some early work in economics said, well, skills are important. Uh, people invest in skills. We'll call that human capital. Like investing in machines, you invest in yourself, and you develop new skills that allow you to do more. But very early on, when people tried to apply those concepts, they were looking for ways to measure the skills. The easiest measurement that was readily available and still is most available is years of schooling. The problem is that years of schooling is a very poor measure of differences in skills. We know that um, as we look into individual countries, like the United States has worried about the quality of its uh, primary and secondary schools, what really is, talking, uh, is being talked about is how much do people know after they've had 12 years of schooling? That's the quality. Um, and so just saying 12 years of schooling is not the answer because we know that it varies by what school people went to, what their family background was, what state they're in, their neighborhoods, and a whole variety of other things. Schooling is one element of developing these skills, what people synonymously refer to as human capital, but that's what we're trying to get away from. We're trying to say that the skills that are important are developed not just in schools, uh, but in the family and the neighborhoods. And moreover, all schools aren't the same. There are some schools that are better than others. So that if we really want to know what the capacity of individuals might be, we have to go deeper than just measuring how long did they sit in a classroom. And how good are these, these tests to measure learning? Well, it turns out um, measuring the learning that's important for economic growth, uh, these tests are extraordinarily good. Um, the simple answer comes from looking at the work that economists have done to explain economic growth. About a quarter of a century ago, economists got very enthusiastic about trying to explain differences in economic growth and to have empirical models that actually explained why um, Korea has grown so fast relative to um, uh, Algeria. And the first thing that people said was, it's got to be human capital, it's got to be skills, and then some other things. Well, it turns out that if we measure human capital by just years of schooling and call that the difference in human capital, that and almost anything else we want to include can explain about a quarter of the variation in growth rates across countries. If, alternatively, I just take an index of their test scores in math and science, which are readily 
readily comparable across countries, I can explain over three-quarters of the differences in growth rates across countries. Now, there's still some that's not explained, and uh, we see a lot of that in terms of questions about regulations of economies, the economic institutions, and other things. But in simplest terms, the majority of differences in growth rates across country can be explained by these indexes of what we call knowledge capital. Now, why is it that math and science are the subjects that are commonly um, used uh, for these tests? Um, we can develop questions that are pretty straightforward that are, are directly comparable. Uh, one one example is that I, in the past, uh, and still try to convince people at the United Nations that is talking about development goals that they ought to have a quantitative measure of skills in their human capital and education component of the sustainable development goals. One measure that we use is what we call basic skills, Basic skills can be easily explained by a simple math problem. Um, if I fly to Tokyo to be with you, I would pay $3,200 for my ticket um, from California to Tokyo. The exchange rate between the dollar and the euro is 1 to 1.1 euros. How much did my ticket or would my ticket cost in euros? So that's a very simple math problem. Uh, it turns out that among the developed countries of the world, 20% um, of the 15-year-olds cannot answer that kind of question reliably. In the U.S., it's 23%. In some uh, countries, it's much less. And in developing countries, it's much more. So I was recently in Honduras. And in Honduras, 84% of 15-year-olds who are in school cannot reliably answer that question. Well, it turns out that, that um, if we had something like that, it would provide a simple goal that could be applied internationally to say, how are we doing? The Honduras, uh, Honduran government could apply that. The U.S. government could apply it. The Japanese government could apply that if we wanted to say, how are we doing toward meeting an education goal? Now, that's not all we want to do, of course. We want to uh, <clears throat> eventually have people learn a variety of other specific things, and we don't want to drill them relentlessly on exchange rate problems in order to get them prepared. But we want to uh, prepare them uh, to answer simple mathematics problems along with being in school. You know, the caveat I gave you before was in Honduras, 84% of those currently in school could answer that problem. But Honduras still doesn't have universal access of 15-year-olds to school. So it would be harder, I would imagine, to have a metric to measure something in the subject of history or social sciences that could be used cross-nationally. Is that is that right? Oh, I think it's 
it's almost impossible to do something like that. And in fact, I have my own questions about whether we can test reading capacity across countries. The international tests, the PISA and the TIMS, or, the, or a re relative of the TIMS, include tests of reading ability, but um, I myself can't see how you can reliably compare people's reading ability when they're being tested in different languages with different language structure and different um, difficulty. Um, and so I generally think more about science and math. Now, it turns out, though, that it probably doesn't matter all that much because uh, if we look at individuals or at the country level, uh, where math problems can be solved, reading is possible. <laughs> you know, that they, people do uh, both reading history, uh, geography, and math um, pretty consistently across the board. The curriculum of a country will affect that a little bit, but in general, if we talk about skills across math, science, and reading as, as tested, they're all quite highly correlated. So I do a lot of work in Southeast Asia, and I've noticed that the trend of late is for governments to really focus on STEM, on science, technology, engineering, and math, as being the, I think in their minds, about being the subjects or the skills that are needed to drive economic growth in the future. Are these, is this you know, policy connection of focusing on STEM connected to the ability for these global uh, metrics to measure math as being a good predictor of, uh, you know, of growth, of economic growth? Well, I think that having a portion of your population adept in STEM fields is important, uh, that lots of innovation and changes in production and and the operations of economies flow from having good engineers and good scientists. Um, but it's also very important, to, we find, to have strong basic skills across the entire population. So um, perhaps an example is contrasting um, India to Finland. India has a very highly developed um, uh, competition to get into their very best engineering schools, and they produce spectacular engineers. Uh, we hire a lot of them here in Silicon Valley. On the other hand, their general education, the basic skills for the other billion people in India is not very well developed. And in Finland, they worry about both having top-end people and having a broad general um, skill base. It turns out that both having rocket scientists, people at the, that are really at the top of the STEM fields, is important, but so is having a broad general population with, with broad general skills. And interestingly, scientists are more productive if they have a good workforce to use their products. So they, if they have a highly skilled workforce, they're 
output in terms of economic gains is stronger. So I think that um, <clears throat> across the board, having both fields is important. Whether for individual countries emphasizing STEM fields or not helps them to develop their broad general skills, I, I don't know. I think that's a matter of country strategy. Um, to the extent that it's done the way India has traditionally done it, by only developing um, high levels of STEM fields, I think that that is probably a mistake. It's a mistake in two ways. One is that it doesn't give as much overall economic growth, but it also leads to tremendously difficult income distribution problems. This is not inclusive growth when, in fact, a large portion of your eighth graders cannot read a simple paragraph. They are not going to be able to keep up in an advancing, growing society. So you, you said that you know a lot of the country-specific strategy would determine um, what policies and what skills and subjects are pushed. But you're saying that there's there's a basic skill set that you think needs to be, you know, generally um, accepted at maybe the the primary and secondary levels. Can you talk a little bit more about what basic skills you're talking about? I, I, we've talked a lot about math um, and the ability to solve. Uh, simple math problems, but are there other basic skills that you would look at um, to be kind of, or you think are the essential sort of skills that um, societies need? Well, it, it's hard to speak very specifically about these. Um, what I have emphasized is primary and secondary school learning, you know, um, basically consistent with the uh, development goals of the world that we're talking about what should somebody know at the end of lower secondary schooling or the end of middle school in the U.S., um, the kinds of skills that uh, analytical skills, inferential skills, general reading and comprehension skills, comprehension in both reading sense uh, across different fields, but also comprehension in basic math skills. These are the kinds of things that further education always builds on. And further education will be much more powerful if um, we have people that are better prepared early. I mean, what we've found in simplest terms is that Early learning has tremendous gains subsequently because everything builds upon what you knew coming in. Um, basically, you don't you don't study history if you aren't pretty good at reading. Um, you don't study economics if you don't know a little bit of mathematics and statistics, and that all builds upon having being able to solve that exchange rate problem, being able to read the basic instructions that are available, and this all builds together. So I'm not advocating um, sort of a, a set of testable um, final outcomes that uh, we can write into our curriculum, that we have to uh, know how to um, integrate by parts. That's, that's not the kind of thing that I'm talking about. I'm talking about more building up 
skills over time and that this starts all generally in primary and secondary schools. So you're basically for you, the, the global learning metrics are valuable because they have the potential of improving the quality of schooling at particularly the primary and secondary level. Um, that's true. And then that has pays dividends both in uh, individual productivity. Uh, it turns out that if we look across countries, we find that people who know more earn more. It's simply it's a simple fact that if people who test higher on some of these basic math and science tests systematically earn more throughout their career. We also what that means, among other things, is if you have more uh, balanced learning in society. So if there's people is are learning at their capacity. You're going to help all the equity and inclusion and distribution issues that are currently being discussed, but you're also going to help the overall economy. So how would you um, factor in inequality uh, inside education systems in the sense that, yes, there are, you know, the, the more you know, the more you'll earn, but there are a lot of people that know a lot more than, say, some Stanford undergraduates, but aren't able to get into Stanford for a sort of, you know, all sorts of different reasons, maybe related to poverty or where they came from. Um, And so privilege and kind of the safety net that that entails and the networks that that entails sometimes disadvantages um, students who, although maybe smart, but simply don't have those connections. Um, So how how do you factor in that sort of the structural inequality that we can find inside education systems? Well, I think I take that as as a fact that we have to deal with and that we have to develop policies to, in fact, um, provide more equitable outcomes. But if I look at... um, if I look at admissions to Stanford University, large private university, expensive private university, the real constraint is not in income and money to get in to pay the tuition. The real constraint is whether they have the skills and achievement to, in fact, get in. Now, that's going to be related often to earlier family backgrounds and the role, one of the roles of schools is to try to ameliorate some of these uh, differences that we see early on in in people's careers that come from the opportunities uh, through their family, through their neighborhoods, and so forth. Um, but these are issues that every society faces to some extent. Um, <clears throat> the economist um, thinks that uh, and a very important part is providing the skills for people to compete as opposed to just trying to redistribute income or, or opportunities across groups independent of the skills they have. And so in the long run, um, if people don't have the skills, they're going to be disadvantaged and they are going to be the ones who are left behind. Now, we can deal today with the disadvantages we see by taking from the more wealthy, taxing them more, putting them into government programs, giving it to the poor. But if we don't 
adjust the skills and the productive capacity of individuals um, when they're young, we're going to keep facing that same problem over and over and over again. But at the same time, we might also disadvantage our ability to do this redistribution because if we take policies that lower economic growth, um, we have less capacity to help out those that don't, uh, don't make it. I want to return to the idea of the global learning metrics um, because it occurred to me that um, you know issues of inequality need to be addressed at the policy level um, of particular nation states and the subjects that should be pushed inside education systems should be done through government strategies also at the nation state level. So the question I have is why do we need to do um, tests like PISA on the global scale? Could this not just be done at the national level? So many countries have national tests and more should have national tests. Um, in simplest terms, you can't improve a system if you don't know where you're at. And so having uh, within-country metrics are often crucial to making good policy decisions to improve outcomes. On the other hand, um, if I'm sitting here in Stanford and my kids are going to the Palo Alto schools, I have no way to know how they compare to my co-authors' children who are going to school in Munich. I have no way to know what is possible, and I view the, the international test first and foremost as telling uh, everybody what is possible, how how much skill can a 15-year-old have in terms of math problems? Um, and secondly, providing some clear goals and, and uh, things to aim for uh, to local national schools. So I want the Palo Alto schools to be competitive with the Munich schools as opposed to the East Palo Alto schools next door. But the the issue there, of course, is that the PISA test measures national systems of education. So, are you trying to say that we need more of the PISA for schools, which we, which I, um, I think I've talked about on the show before, which is about measuring school systems, uh, and I think this only takes place in the U.S. at the moment, um, and then allowing it to compare a particular school system to national systems of education. Is that, that's what we need? Well, we basically need more testing at the school level? I, I think the PISA for schools is probably okay. It doesn't do much in terms of making policy because in simplest terms, if you have a set of school districts that voluntarily agree to take these tests and the ones that volunteer are not a random sample of the schools in any state or or, or the country, it makes it very difficult to use them to guide policy. So <clears throat> if the Palo Alto schools participate in PISA uh, for schools and we find out that we are or are not com uh, comparable to Munich, we might be able to puff out our chest a little bit and say, yes, we're, we've got a good system or not, but it doesn't really help in making policy. What we want are systematic 
measures, such as the accountability measures that are in the United States across the states, that allow us to compare schools that are similar. So if I look at schools that have similar family backgrounds in terms of, say, the education levels of parents or, or the income levels of parents, um, is my school doing better than, than the one next to me? But I can also translate all of these tests into the international studies. It uh, takes very little, actually, to have the capacity to take the tests that are given routinely in the United States into PISA tests, uh, because I know where the countries stand and, and psychometricians can, in fact, do these comparisons. Well, Eric Hanushek, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thanks so much for having me. I hope this has been an interesting discussion for our audience. Eric Hanushek is the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. Next week, we continue this mini-series on global learning metrics with my conversation with Radhika Guru, who talks about her new article, Seeing Like Pisa. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, D. Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG which take no institutional positions. Please be sure to visit freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.